And I don't know about you, but I'm very excited about having one of our first um, hearing impaired services today. And it's really cool to see. Um, I will be reading the scripture this morning. And this comes from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 23, verse 25. This can be found on page 1606 of your pew Bible. So buckle in. Luke chapter 22, from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there to the, in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered what the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. 
He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man, as one who was citing the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But the, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of the Lord, written for his people. Thank you, Femi. Good morning. My name is Mike, I'm part of the team here. Thank you, Linda, for your ministry. Good to have you here. And the Bridge Community Deaf Church will be with us on the first Sunday of each month. And uh, very glad to have them here. Pastor Nick and 41 others are in Israel. Pray that they not only enjoy what they're discovering and, and such, but that I asked Nick what he wanted out of the trip, and he, he said, I really hope that I can have some time of just devotion, some time where I can just connect to what God's doing and, and such. There's nothing mystical about walking in the ground there in Israel, but there is a connection that's unique. So let's just pray for them as they go, and they'll be back this week. You may have noticed in your bulletins, um, when it comes to the budget, that there's a deficit number, about 28000 That's good and bad. Um, the budget number for us means that last May the congregation took a number and said, we think we can give this amount. And, and it was 5 or 6% more than was given the previous year. And so that's what we call budget. Now, in reality, um, you have given more than last year. We set some things according to that budget number, and 
But at the same time, we've watched that, and, and our actual spending is less than the income. So that's a good thing. Along the way, the giving to benevolence has been wonderful, which has allowed us to uh, give, I'm not sure how many thousands, but I know it's thousands of dollars away to those who need help with heating and housing, especially over the winter months. And that's been a, a joy for, able to, for you to do that and care for people's direct needs. We're also looking at being able to uh, fund some after-school programs from Mount Zion and for um, Lighthouse for some parents that need care for their children but, but have to work and can't afford it. And so I've been talking with Marcus and, and Marcio, and that's just a need. And, and we're going to be able to, because of your generosity in that, to meet that. So thank you for your generosity. Know that as we give, it's a direct effect to the ministry that we do as a church. And, but we do thank you for your faithfulness. So as you heard, Femi read a long passage. I think Nick's mad at me. But uh, we've been talking about two plans and counterpoints as they're presented in this last part of Luke. One is the destruction of God's plan, unbeknownst to them. The more they decide to destroy his plan, the more it fulfills the plan that God has put into place. There's one of the things that I, I hope we get to along the way in this, this statement. It's who we know Jesus to be that keeps us strong in adversity. We're going to look at seven individuals, um, groups of people that were confused on who he is. And because of that confusion, they didn't respond in the way that they should have, but they responded out of the flesh. And so we're going to pick up the story, the narrative, shouldn't call it a story, the narrative of, of what was happening. And, and I'll do that through scenes so we can kind of keep track. Messages like this are hard to preach to a room full of Christians because you all know it so well. And it's easy to been there, done that before in your mind. But I encourage you to listen to who Jesus is as opposed to how he's being presented. Because in our own minds, we fall into places where I hope we don't posture, I hope we don't succumb to opinion of the public, but stand for who we know Jesus to be. So they finished dinner, and they had the Lord's Supper. And that had to be confusing for the disciples, because they hadn't practiced it like we do, like we're going to in just a few minutes. All this talk about death and, and his body and his blood, it had to leave them kind of wondering, confused, and, and it says, and he went and prayed as usual. That's a great phrase because it, it shows us that there was a pattern that this man Jesus had in his life because he was the son of man and needed insight from the Father. Now what that means to be son of man, we see in Philippians 2 where it says that he laid down his deity so that he could live here on earth as you and I live, as people. He was born of a virgin. The father of God, but he lived out as a man, not as God. He was still God, but he made a choice. And all through the Gospels, you see these great phrases, and being filled with the Spirit, or led by the Spirit, or the Spirit was upon him. 
and he does these things in tandem with the Spirit of God that we call miracles, and we think, well, God's doing those. He was, but he was doing them through Jesus, who was living as a man. Later, Jesus has the tenacity to say, and these things you will do, even greater things, because we too are humans, full of the Spirit, doing as God would have us to do, proclaiming who he is to a world that needs to know. And so, as was his habit, he went and prayed. Now, where Jesus went, the boys went. Can you imagine for three years having 12 young guys follow you everywhere? It's like, can you just stay here? So they go to the garden, and they're at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and he does say that. He says, you guys pray here. I'm going to go over here. I need, some, I need some alone time. But he says this to them. Pray so that you are not tempted. Usually, we pray when we're being tempted. I don't think I've ever had anybody instruct me to pray so I wouldn't be tempted. Often when I go to prayer, I find myself with a list, with my needs, with my pain. But Jesus said, pray so you won't be tempted. Then he went on, it says a couple of stones throws, those were a weight and so he was probably from here to, to Pastor Lloyd over there. And he begins the most agonizing prayer he's ever prayed. He's a man. He is so full of anxiety and the weight of what's happening and coming. His capillaries on his face are bursting and he looks as, as, as if he's sweating blood. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, I'm game. This is going to hurt. But if this is what it takes to fulfill your plan, then I'm in. Prayer requires honesty, humility, and the willingness to be led differently. He knew that when Hebrews 4.15 was going to be penned, it would say, therefore let us approach with confidence to the throne of grace in order that we may receive mercy in a willingness to walk through it because of his grace. It's interesting. We tend, I tend, to try to find a way out. Something bad is coming. I'm weak. I'm like, help! Let's get through this differently. I don't like where this is going. Your God, do something about it. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to give you the grace to walk through it. I'm going to give you what you need to go straight through this thing you call a crisis. This thing that's an adversarial object in your path. I've often wondered, even in my own life, how much time do I spend in fruitless prayers? trying to avoid what God is doing. Because I find that when I walk through with God in what he is doing, I grow. And he's far more concerned with my character and my godliness than he is the situation I might find myself in. And there are times when he's gracious, he allows us to do an end run. But more often than not, it's straight through. 
and his grace is sufficient. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Temptation has not come upon you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will also make a way out together with the temptation so that you may be able to endure it. Not my favorite word, endure. goes right along with persevere. God seems to like those words because he's able to help that happen in our lives. We can go to prayer about our anxieties, our pain, because God cares more about us than we understand or can even believe. He knows who we are, full of his spirit, what can be accomplished in that combination. And he has great confidence that when we look to him and know who Jesus is, know who God is, that we can persevere, that we can walk through. Jesus gets done and he goes back over to the t- disciples and he's like, seriously? I have just prayed till I sweat in blood and you guys are asleep? Wake up! Pray that you will not fall into temptation. It says, and while he was speaking, a group shows up, led by Judas. Now Judas says the devil had entered into Judas. He was one of the twelve, but he had sent something coming around and He's like, I'm not going to go through this. I'm going to get the most out of this that I can. This isn't going where we thought it was going. He's not going to somehow overcome Rome. So he goes to the high priest, and he sells his soul, and he says, I'll bring you to to Jesus. So he shows up, and as would be the custom of people who know each other well, he kisses Jesus on the right cheek, then the left. And Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Have you noticed that when you're doing something wrong, you're often tempted to cover it? You're often tempted to hide the fact that you know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it as discreetly as I can. What did Judas tell the high priest? I'll do it at night. I'll do it in private. This isn't a public thing, but I'll give him to you. And then he takes an act of friendship, an act of love, to hide what he's doing. If you're doing something and you think you need to posture to make it look better to somebody else, it's probably sin. You probably just shouldn't do it. Sin always wants to cover its tracks. Oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, you know. Sin happens at night, alone. Sin happens when we think nobody's looking. When we can cover the tracks. So pay attention. If you think you need to cover, stop. Now, about that time, the disciples decide to jump in, and somebody pulls a sword and cuts the ear off, and Jesus picks it up and puts it back on and heals them, and then he looks at those and says, Stop it! This isn't us. They did that because they hadn't prayed, and so they didn't know how to act 
when they were tempted to act out of the flesh. If Jesus said, pray that you're not tempted, the opposite must have been true, that if they had been prayed, they would have been given the instructions to act, to be led differently instead of out of the flesh. But they didn't know. They hadn't stopped. They hadn't prayed. They didn't receive direction. They didn't receive understanding, like Jesus said, or didn't, as his prayer went to the Father. And the Father said, no, this is what we're doing. And he said, okay, I submit. So he wasn't surprised when Judas shows up. He wasn't surprised when they took him into the courtyard. But the disciples were, because they hadn't prayed. They hadn't listened. They hadn't listened to the point of being led differently. And so they go, the disciples disperse, Peter follows at a distance, and they go into the courtyard. And there, Peter, through acts of self-preservation, denies Jesus three times. You were with him? No. You got me confused with somebody else. No, you've been hanging around him, I've seen you. No. And then it says, an hour later. No, not me. I don't know this guy. And just, just curious. You know, I'm taking law. I wanted to see how a trial went. And on the third denial, the rooster crows. and Peter, all of a sudden, is taken back to those words. Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And the rooster will crow to remind you. And he catches Jesus' eye, and it runs out in agony. Because he did what he swore he would never do. I will never deny Jesus Christ. Have you ever said that? Even in your own mind? And then something happened that was so severe that the flesh could not keep you, even where you believed you could stand. If we're not in the habit of coming to Jesus, if we're not in the habit to humble ourselves before his will, if we're not in the habit of being accustomed to being led differently than the flesh would want us to leave, we will find ourselves in places that can destroy us. And that's what self-preservation will eventually do. Rather than hide, we should seek what is the Father doing? What does the Bible say? What do I know is truth? Who do I know Jesus to be so I can stand? Are we like Peter? Are we listening to Jesus when he says to pray so we're not tempted? When I look at Peter, I'm like my hero. The other side of the cross, because he becomes the mouthpiece of the new church. But he had to go through a fire. He had to learn some things. The flesh is weak. And Jesus meant what he said. And he could obey it. He could trust it. Do we look at what's coming at us? Do we look at our bank statements? Do we look at the stocks? Do we look at the politics? And, and do we allow ourselves to be anxious? Forgetting that Jesus was the Son of Man? He understood he faced the harlot. He faced 
being homeless. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew what it was like to be popular. He knew what it was like to be a, a guy. And yet he did so sinlessly. We can come to him because we know he's the Son of God. We see the rest of the story. We know that he sits at the right hand of the Father. As he confessed in just a few minutes, that he will sit at the hand of the mighty God. And we have to look at ourselves, and we have to take into account we're weak. There's a reason Paul keeps telling us to believe. Because if we don't, there will be something that will take you down, that will take you out, but it need not because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. You can have confidence because of who Jesus is to stand. So they take him to the court. Now, they take him to the house, to the courtyard in the house of the high priest. The Mishnah, which is the Judaism's rule book, as it were, tells how things are supposed to happen throughout every area of, of Judaism. The trial was supposed to take place in the temple, not the chief priest's house. It was supposed to have a defense for the accused. There was no defense. Jesus didn't blaspheme. That was his name. He was the Son of Man. He was the Son of God. He was the Christ. The verdict came on the same day as the trial. There was supposed to be at least two days separating the end of the trial and the, and the announcement of the verdict. It was on a feast day that was supposed to be in the temple. The temple would be ablaze in a feast of welcoming the things that God has done rather than de destroying the plan of God. Testimony was not supposed to be continually finding other means to condemn, there was supposed to be testimony that would contradict the accusations. And the high priest was not to announce the verdict. The clerk in the court was. And so all of these things, they were a sham. They didn't want it to be legal. They just needed to be expedient. They needed things to go in their favor. It didn't need to be about law. It needed to be about opinion. Much in the same thing that's happening in our media recently. We don't really care what the law has been written as. How do we think it should be interpreted for our benefit? Finally, they get to the crux of the thing. If you are the Christ, tell us. And he says... If I tell you, you're not going to believe me anyway. Now, they wanted him to say he was the Christ, but they still wouldn't believe that he was the Christ. He just needed to indict himself. Their mind had been made up. And he says, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the Father, the mighty God. Now, with that, he says, he's talking about three things. He says, I'm going to get there, even though you're going to kill me, and I'm going to raise from the dead, and I'm going to ascend to God, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to sit at the right hand of, of God. I will utilize my authority 
because I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. And I have the authority over you, even though you think this trial is about me. Nowhere did Jesus ever deny who he is. He made no effort to save himself. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? He's confessed. Now, they had a problem in that they couldn't condemn to death. This was the church. So they had to politicize what was going on so they could get rid of this nuisance, so they could save face, so they could continue their rule. So they take him to Pilate. Now Pilate's the governor, and he's actually the only one who could have condemned him to death. He says, are you king of the Jews? He said, yes. He didn't care if he was king of the Jews. He just wanted to know that Rome wasn't being defaced. He says, I find no fault in this man. Aren't you a Galilean? That's Herod's jurisdiction. You shouldn't be here anyway. And he does the political correct thing, and he does the thing that can save face, and he passes him to Herod. Now, Herod says he was anxious to meet Jesus. He really wasn't. He was anxious to see a sign. He was anxious to be entertained. He was anxious to see this man do something he couldn't do. Jesus wasn't going to be mocked in that way. So he stayed silent. Herod finally fed up, mocks him himself, puts a robe on him, sends him back to Pilate. I find no fault in him either. He's yours to do in front of the people. Israel, the leaders didn't know what to do, so they did what often happens. The minority became so loud that their statement became the norm. We find that happening today in our media, in our country. Those who would like to twist something, although they be a minority, are so loud that it becomes accepted across the household. And they turn to the cr crowd, the same crowd that a week earlier, five days earlier, had been shouting, Hosanna, King of Kings, King of Peace, all of these wonderful accolades as they welcomed him into Jerusalem. Now the message has been given them, no, crucify him. Because he's a nuisance to us. He's a nuisance to our power. He's a nuisance to our way of life. And so the minority faction gave a word to the voice, and the voice in a mob declared what wasn't true to be true. And it carried the day. A couple of comments. Christianity is a historical religion, set of beliefs, and, and we can go back in history, and that's why there's an account like this in the Bible, because it can be matched up with other historical writings so that we have faith, that we have assurance that it's true. The other thing is there's a neutrality that happens when we don't fully embrace Jesus. 
being neutral, that doesn't say I'm a follower of Jesus. Being neutral is a denial of Jesus. The failure of Peter stands in stark contrast to the nerves of steel Jesus had. I've often wondered about martyrs. I've met some people around the world that live in great persecution, and I find their faith to be just like mine, except their confidence in who Jesus is is, is stellar. It can't be contradicted. And because they are so confident of who Jesus is, so confident that his spirit dwells within them, they stand firm to the point of death, to the point of great persecution. And I also found these same people to be some of the most joyful people I've ever met. Because it's not about their situation, it's about who Jesus is. Roman leaders not looking for a fight with the Jews. They don't want an insurrection. They want to live in peace, and so they play the political correctness card. They say what will ever appease the masses. And in this instance, they wanted Jesus. They found no fault. They should have released, but instead they punished and gave him back to the Jews. The judge became the judge. His trial became our trial, though. And this isn't a question to you if you're not a believer in Christ. This is a question to me and to those of us that have been Christ followers all our lives for a very long time. Who do we say Jesus is? And that's not meant to be a trite statement, but it's meant to be a statement that allows you to question the depth of sincerity and belief in who Jesus is. If we had prayed to not be tempted, if we were humble in our prayers, if we were open to his leadership, his lordship, to being led differently, would you have had a different response at the veiled threat at work? Would you have lashed out at your children when they were simply seeking time from you, but they invaded your comfort? Would you have listened to understand in the last argument? Would you have spoken to bring encouragement, clarity, and understanding? If you understood what God wants to do in you, if you understood what God is doing in you, in the presence of the Spirit, and confident in the work that Jesus has accomplished, those might have different outcomes than they have when we go to work in the flesh when we parent in the flesh, when we do marriage in the flesh or relationship in the flesh. But the ability, because of who he is, is there to live godly in righteousness. There's one more name, and that was Barabbas. Barabbas had led a rebellion. He had led an insurrection. He had murdered and it wasn't against the church, it was against Rome. And Barabbas finishes the story for us. He helps the story make sense. And Pilate's like, 
he hasn't done anything. Crucify him. So they came to an agreement. We'll release somebody that deserves death. Barabbas was on the way to the cross. He was released and Jesus was nailed to it. Barabbas' name could have been Michael. Could have been Joe, it could have been Sam, it could have been Alan, it could have been a number of names in this room. Because we all deserved, because we're sinners. We had committed the sin, the crime. And Jesus went to the cross. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. And that communion is about remembering who Jesus is so that we can stand. It's about remembering the cross so that we can celebrate that we don't endure the pain that our sin demands. And we should come joyously, but we should also come understanding that there was a price to be paid. Gladly paid for you and for I. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, and this was what I heard from God, that, that we should pause. So it's something we do on the first Sunday of each month. And that we should take the cup and the bread, and we should give thanks to Jesus for what he did, for his suffering, so that I can be free. And as we do that today, in just a moment, I encourage you to consider the fact that not only are you capable of being free from sin, but that you're also capable of standing in adversity because of who he is and what he has done. Now, a few verses later, it says, if you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't said, Jesus, lead me, it says, don't do this, because this is a celebration for those who have. But I want to tell you, if you're in that place, it only takes a moment to recognize that you're a sinner, that you have lived a life contrary to God's intention. And if you're tired of that breaking you down, you have the opportunity right now to recognize Jesus for who he is and for what he did. And you have the opportunity to say, Father, forgive me. I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know that my sin was against you. And I choose to say no to sin and yes to your way. And what you're going to get out of that is forgiven and a better version of you. He's not going to change your personality. He's not going to do anything like that. He's just going to make who he intended for you to be better. Holy, righteous, true, pure, forgiven. And Jesus says, practice those things. Remember those things often as you celebrate my death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper. We're going to...